fanfares. There, we have a few forms in our society we're accustomed to. Let's start with perhaps one of the least important fanfares. Um, I saw it uh, in a basketball game, of all things, between Kansas and Kentucky, playing last year, I think it was, and some neutral site. Whoever had planned this, I, I, it was at Kentucky, okay? Whoever planned this had that guy who is the ring announcer um, come out and read the opening lineups, and then came his signature. You know what comes next, right? Let's get ready to rumble. It's kind of a fanfare. It gets everybody stirred up. There are more significant fanfares in this world. Uh, perhaps you've seen uh, things that involve like a marriage of one of the royals, one of the British royals. Well, hardly a woman alive hasn't seen that, and a good deal of men too. But you know when they, are, they come in procession, boy, it is some of the finest music you will hear some of the most beautiful clothing that people can wear, and, and it's all so well put together. And it makes quite a fanfare, doesn't it? We have a little bit of fanfare in our country. It's not quite like that, but you think about a presidential inauguration. That's probably the closest thing we get to a fanfare in, in our republic. And we do pull out the stops uh, there's a great deal of money that gets spent uh, on, on such an event. And it's a, I think, uh, even if you're not particularly fond of the person who may have taken office, whom they may, still we can all as Americans rejoice in a peaceful transfer of power. Just think you could live in a country where there's a military takeover every few years and, and Hundreds and if not thousands of people die in the process. And then you get a military government until somebody else does it. And you want to talk about instability, that's a good picture of it. So even if it were only for that reason, we ought to thank the Lord and rejoice at a peaceful transfer of power in our country. It is for the best. But I say all that to say, what if it were your responsibility to come up with the program for welcoming not just a king, but the king of kings. How would you like for that responsibility to be upon your shoulders? What if you were a musician and it was your responsibility to play music for that event or to compose music for the return of the king of kings? What if it were your privilege to be taken up to heaven to get a preview of what the return of the King of Kings would be like, and then given a commission, after seeing it all, to write it down. Well, that's exactly what happened to the author of our book. It's the Apostle John. And he is writing the vision of the return of Jesus Christ. And what you have in verses 4 through 8 are basically three elements. You have what we call in letter form a salutation. Maybe a better word for understanding is a greeting. And so you have the person greeting and the recipients of that greeting. And then you have a doxology, which is a giving praise or glory to the Lord. 
And finally, what we'll have in our text today, and there's quite a bit in just a few verses here, I think you'll agree, you have a dramatic announcement. And that really brings us to the heart of what this, this book or letter is about. And so with that this morning, I invite your attention as we look to Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And I've entitled the message, Fanfare for the Coming King. Because of all of the letters of the New Testament, of all of the forms of greeting, this is the most elaborate. This is gilded. This is glorious. And that's why I think it might appropriately be viewed as a fanfare. So with that, let's read our text today. Let's stand out of respect for that, if we could. First, uh, chapter of Revelation, verses 4 through 8. The Word of God says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And all God's people said, Father, use the message today for our good and your glory. Give me grace and wisdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you're taking notes this morning, I have two basic thoughts to get across to you as we break down what is the salutation part of this great, great letter. Last week, we looked at the prologue, that's verses 1 through 3. And here we have what comes next in an ancient letter form. You would take in your hand a pen, or at least we used to do this, now we email everything, but you used to take a pencil or a pen and you would start your letter, Dear so-and-so. And isn't it interesting how even if they never were dear, you always say that when you start a letter, don't you? There's a, form, a format. Now, if you're writing an email, almost never do you put dear. So we're kind of losing this. But there's always this introduction, an addressing of someone. And so it is in this first century letter. It's near the close of the first century. We're talking about A.D. 90, maybe as late as 95, that this letter is written. It will close the canon of Scripture. It is the last book of the Bible. One of the reasons we know it's the last book is because we have a solemn warning at the end of the book. If anybody adds 
to the words of this prophecy, God says, I will add all the plagues written in this book. A solemn warning. Nobody should detract. Nobody should add. And that is true of the whole canon of Scripture, but it's also true of this book in particular because it closes the canon of Scripture. There is no book after it. And so we come to this part of the letter, which is the salutation or the greeting. It is a grand greeting. And then we'll look at the great announcement as we conclude uh, looking at our passage this morning. So first of all, the grand greeting. And you'll notice that there is both a human author that greets as well as the divine author. The human author is named John. That is a New Testament form of the Old Testament name, Jonah. The form is just a little different, but it is essentially the same name. It is John who writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. We'll have more to say about this going forward, but just simply remind you that John is in exile on an island. It is the island of Patmos. It is not a luxurious island like in the Caribbean with swaying palm trees. He does not have a hammock that he climbs into. Uh, He is in a place that looks lunar. It looks like the moon. And it's very barren. It's very desolate. This is a place where the emperor would send people where they could go and be left and die. And in his aged situation of life, that's exactly what the prospect is. John will live out his last few years or however many it may be on this island it would seem, and that's what the the emperor wanted. And yet as he is there, God has not left him alone. God communes with him, and it is on the Lord's day that he receives this revelation. That is a Sunday. That is the first day of the week, just like today. John is in the spirit. That means he is uh, being ministered to where he has a spiritual uh, state of receiving a vision. And this is the vision that he receives. He will explain that in a little bit. So it is John who is the human author and he's able to look across the water and if it is a clear day, he can make out a little bit of the outline of the shoreline of that that region that he is addressing. They are very much on his hearts. It's actually that city of Ephesus that John is closest to. He will have time to go there once again, it would appear. That's where he will die. They also claim in Ephesus that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was able to go there. Why? Because we know that John was given responsibility by Christ on the cross to take care of his mother. Hence the words, behold thy mother. In other words, it's your responsibility now, John, to take care of her. So there's tradition. We don't know how strong or accurate it is that the tomb uh, which uh, has been built in Ephesus there's a monument there to say that Mary died in the city of Ephesus but John certainly was there and we understand as an old man would go around preaching five word sermons to people you'll never forget it when I tell you he would say little children love one another that's a good thing for us to remind everybody about right remind each other Little children love one another. These people are very much on his heart and mind. And now he is writing a letter to them. How it will get there, he does not know. He just knows it's his responsibility to be the human author. And it's to those seven churches 
that are over in Asia. They're not called, uh, they're not listed here in verse 4. They are down in verse 11. If you want to look and see what they are, you'll get a great deal of detail about them as we get to chapters 2 and 3. So I won't steal that thunder now. It's that these churches are so representative, I believe, of churches throughout the church age that they are dealt with singularly in the book of Revelation. In other words, you can look at one or more of these churches and say, you know, our church is a lot like that one. And it has a message for us today as well. So it's John to the seven churches that are in Asia. That is the human author. And then comes these words that so often come in scriptural letters. You have grace and peace. There is a wish or a blessing that comes to the recipients of the letter. Grace is a Greek greeting, but peace is a Hebrew greeting. He brings in both ethnicities or major ethnicities that are in the first century church, or if you'd like, Jew and Gentile ethnicities. And a Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting together, you might stop and think about it for a moment. Grace, God's grace, is unmerited favor. He is supernatural, enabling to do what we in the flesh cannot do. Always precedes peace. You can't have peace without God's grace. True? And so then when you have received God's peace, you ought to turn it around and make sure that you are giving out his grace to one another as well. They come in pairs, grace and peace. They come in pairs in scriptural literature as well. Here's the source of grace and peace. Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is a mighty title that is given to God. It lets us know that the one who is the eternal I am, who is in the eternal present, who always has been, who always will be, is the one who actually is greeting us through this letter. You say, I would love to hear from God. Well, great. Pick up your Bible and read. Amen? And you will hear from God. You'd say, I'd like a personal message from the Lord. Great. Pick up your Bible and read the book of Revelation. And you'll see that it is the one who is and who was and who is to come is addressing you and me. It is that personal. He speaks to you and me personally through his word. Don't miss his message even one day. Pick up your Bible and read it every day and see what he has to say to you. So he is the Holy Trinity, in fact. You find the threes very prominent through the book of Revelation. Who is, who was, who is to come. He's in the present tense. He is with us right now. God is not just a a figure from history, nor is he a figure from future prophecy, but he is a figure in our here and now. And those three time frames are descriptive of his eternality. He is the eternal father. He is the I am. He is also the manifested spirit. Notice the next description. The greeting also comes from before the throne. And who is there? Well, it says the seven spirits who are before the throne. I do not profess to have perfect understanding of this expression. It's a little bit unusual. 
Most other times in the Bible, when we have reference to the Holy Spirit, we don't have multiple personages or character traits connected with him. But what are the seven spirits? Is it even to be understood as the Holy Spirit? Or are they seven angels? Angels are spirit beings, we know that. Well, commentators vary on this. But the reason I probably need to go over and believe this is a reference to the Holy Spirit is because the one that comes before it is deity. The one that comes after him is deity. We have plainly a reference to the eternal God, I think probably the Father, with the first statement. And following this one, we have a reference clearly to the Son because it says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Here again is a grouping of threes, right? And so I think it's probably... such the case that we should understand this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I think it'd be a little odd to have Father and angels and the Son in the grouping of three. I think it's Father, Spirit, and Son. Now, if it is the Holy Spirit, what are the seven spirits? How are we to understand that? And my answer would be from two passages. We have Zechariah 4 and Isaiah chapter 11. In Zechariah 4 you have reference to the Holy Spirit being the oil that lights the lampstands of God. And how is God's work to be accomplished in that particular passage? Well, the prophet says, you say, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Friends, as we go on in Revelation 1, we're going to see that the lampstands or the lights for, that God brings into this world are the churches. Just stop and think on that figure for a moment. Just like these lights over on this wall are giving out light. So this place is not dark. God has put churches in communities around the world to give light to a dark world. You are the light of the world, the Lord Jesus says. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. That's quite a responsibility, isn't it? Carol Baptist Church and other Bible-preaching churches like it are supposed to be a lighthouse for those who are looking for God's revelation in a darkened world. Oh, that we might give out that light, the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, the light of Bible truth, all of it. Let the Lord shine his light through you and me. So we have the Spirit who is the oil that gives light to the lampstands, which are the churches. He also manifests himself in numbers of ways. Let me just show you this reference, Isaiah 11 and verse 2. It has seven aspects of the Spirit's ministry there. It's described there in that verse that he is the Spirit of the Lord. He is the Spirit of wisdom. He's the Spirit of understanding. He's the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge. And finally, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, seven things. (laughs) Maybe that is exactly what's being referenced to. This is a sevenfold ministry that is described here in Isaiah chapter 11. Maybe that is what the seven spirits before the throne have referenced to. By way of application, let me just pause to reflect for a moment that I think it's probably a, a truism among us that many Christians do not understand the ministry of the Spirit very well. And many of us labor without empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a good time to just remind ourselves, remind one another, 
that God gave his spirit to be our helper through this church age. Jesus is not here, but he gave the spirit a comforter like he is, a comfort of the same kind. And I encourage you to make full use of him. I see a lot of Christians who don't have the comfort they need. (laughs) They don't have the help they need in the Christian life. And that tells me one thing. You You are not fully taking advantage of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. I pray that you will. He is also greeting us. Notice, the greeting comes from the human author and the divine author who comes to us with three different titles or three different descriptions. There's the eternal father. We've seen the manifested spirit. And finally, in verse 5, the testifying son. I say that because right after it says, and from Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what a personal joy that was for John to hear those words? A man who is all alone, who has been separated from the Christian community, and now for maybe 40 years or 50, has walked about on this earth without the presence of the dear Lord Jesus, whom he once walked with. The one he met that day when he was out fishing. And the Lord said, follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. And there he was with brother James. And there he was with Peter out in that boat. And they left their nets. And they followed him. And life would never be the same. They followed him and listened to him and walked with him and talked with him. They broke bread with him. They watched his miracles. And then came that time when he was arrested. He said that would happen. And he was tried and he was crucified. And then he rose. And then they had more time with him, 40 days. And then finally he was taken up into heaven. And now 40, 50 years pass. And the personal presence of Jesus Christ was not there. But now, now he speaks. From Jesus Christ, the words are. Oh, Mike, can you just imagine how that lifted his spirits? But he's speaking to us, friends, not just to John. He speaks through the word to us. From Jesus Christ, it goes on to say, the faithful. The original word here is martyr. We've seen that before. If you think it's a hard thing, perhaps, to be called upon by the Lord to suffer for your faith, or maybe even to possibly be called upon to give your life for the Lord, let's not forget that he is the faithful martyr, one who is willing to give his life as a seal to his faith, to seal his testimony with his blood. He did that, didn't he? And that's one of the reasons why we should never compromise on biblical truth because it has been sealed by the blood of our Savior. And others have given their lives for the truth. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And then it says the firstborn from the dead. Now please don't think in a chronology here, because that's not the intention. To be the firstborn is to be the preeminent one. It's to be the most significant one. It's to be the leader or the head. 
And that is the sense. There were other people raised from the dead before Jesus Christ was in terms of history of the world. But he is the most significant one. Why is that? Because it's his resurrection that guarantees our resurrection. It's his victory over death that guarantees our victory over death. That would not be true of anybody else, would it? That our Savior rose victorious over sin and death and hell, and thus he is the firstborn, the preeminent one from the dead. One last thing. It says, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We have seen his primacy as a witness. Notice this. That would indicate as a prophet in the past. His legitimacy is the firstborn from the dead. And he ever lives as the great high priest to make intercession for us. And now we're looking at his authority as the king. The king of kings. And of course, that's his office as king. If you followed there. This identifies him as the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah is literally the anointed one. The three offices for which people were anointed in the Old Testament were prophet, priest, and king. Nobody ever fulfilled all three offices in the Old Testament. Occasionally you would see an individual hold two. But nobody held all three. If you got anointed for all three offices, truly you would be the anointed one and that's exactly what the name christ means christos is the greek form of the hebrew messiah he is the messiah he is jesus the messiah jesus the christ the anointed one and here you have three titles that indicate he has fulfilled completely all that was shown in the old testament of prophets priests and kings. We now need no other to fulfill those offices because he fulfills them all perfectly. As king, he has this title. You'll notice many times he is called a prince. And that, of course, is prospective of the days in which somebody will then become a king. He is called the prince of peace. This is a great Christmas title, isn't it? His name shall be called, among other things, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He is called the Prince of Princes by Daniel the prophet. He is called the Prince of Life by Peter in Acts chapter 3. He's called a prince and a savior, Acts 5 and 31. He's also called a governor to rule his people Israel. He has power over the prince of demons, Satan. He has power over the prince of this world, whomever that may be at any time. He has power over the prince of the power of the air. That, of course, is our enemy, the devil. He rules over kings of this world by right. He showed supremacy over the greatest rulers of this world. Think of Pharaoh. Think of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Think of Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. It doesn't matter if it was Caesar of Rome. All of them saw that they were nothing in comparison to the king of kings. Every governor has a person who governs them, and that's God. Every president has a person who presides over him, and that is Jesus Christ. Every lord has someone who is lord of him, and that is our God in heaven. 
And every king has a king, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and ruler of the kings of the earth, even in the year 2017. Say amen if you believe that. And finally, we come to the last two elements of this this greeting here. In fact, it turns into something of a prayer or a praise because a doxology has both elements into it. It's almost as if someone stops in the middle of something and leads out in prayer and invites you to join in with them. You'll notice in the middle of this verse, in verse 5, it does that. In fact, our verse division doesn't even change. It's so spontaneous. The The apostle is now giving praise to the Lord by saying, unto him. That means time to pray. Unto him who loves us. You know, if you just stop and contemplate the love of God, it will do amazing things to your heart today. Just think about what he loves us in spite of. Isn't that true? There are things about us that we could tell any other person in this congregation today and we would repel them because of the revelation of what we really are. Isn't that true? There are things that you hardly would be even willing to tell the person you love most in this world, your spouse, because you don't want to hurt them. Or cause them to think worse about you than they do. Isn't that true? Come on, be real with me. Isn't that true? What we really are. And you know the amazing thing is that God knows it all. And he still loves us. Amen? Unto him who loves us. Now if you haven't had anything to praise God yet for today, I think you just should stop right there and do that. Because that's what John is so amazed with and filled with. Unto him who loves us. He's not talking only about apostles. He's talking about every single Christian. In fact, our God is so great, he loves a lost and perverted world. Because for God so loved the world that he gave. Unto him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Depending on the text base, there are some references here to either washed and some to freed or loosed. There's actually only one letter difference between the spellings of those two words in the Greek. And I think that accounts for the difference in the manuscripts. Some, but the, the, whatever it is, the same thing, is it's true in either case. Has he washed us? Yes. Has he freed us? Yes. And what did the freeing and what did the washing? The answer is the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Think about how the Lord freed you from your sins, released you. That's the idea. You are no longer under the bondage of your sins in which you were born. You are no longer under the bondage of the sins which you have committed. You are no longer, properly speaking, a child of Adam. Because even so in Christ shall all be made alive. As was our memory verse this morning. What a wonderful truth. 
That is why we should offer him praise and glory, as in this doxology here. What is a doxology? It is giving glory to God. That's exactly what John is doing. Unto him who loved us. He then finishes by saying, To him has made us a, sorry, verse 6, he has made us a kingdom. What kind of kingdom? Well, next phrase, priests to his God and Father. This is the strangest kingdom the world has ever seen because every single person in it is a priest. And if you are a kingdom, there is certainly a king and probably other royalty as well. That's the implication of that. If you are a born-again child of God, you're not a nobody. You're part of a kingdom. And you're a priest in that kingdom. Wonderful truths. He has made everybody that. It's not a select group. It's everybody in the group. So he has made you a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. Now comes the doxological statement. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Boy, this is a wonderful book of praise, isn't it? Do you ever praise the Lord? Do you ever say that to him? Lord, to you be all the glory and the dominion. You're the actual ruler. You're the only one who can rule this mess that we have. We need you. Lord, I want you to rule my life. I want you to be king over my life. I give you the dominion over that and give you praise and glory for that. Amen. Now, somebody might ask, it's a minor thing. Pastor, do you pronounce that word amen or amen? You've heard me say it both ways. Technically, it's amen, but Baptists always say amen. So have it your way. Oh, so it's okay, whatever you say. In number seven, verse seven, now comes the beginning of a declaration. And this is a marvelous declaration. And it's first of all of his near and visible return. Behold is, it is designed to get your attention. If you've been sleeping or your attention has wandered just a little bit, it's time to snap it right back and pay attention to a very important announcement. Behold, what? He says, he is coming with the clouds. You know, when you read the book of Revelation, it's a reminder that Jesus could return at any time nothing stopping or preventing him from coming at any time. And if he comes, you'll have no excuse if you weren't ready because this is your notice. He's serving it now. Be ready because he is coming with the clouds. What sort of coming? Some people interpret Revelation in a very allegorical way or spiritual, non-literal way, but you really can't come to that interpretation with what follows. Some think Jesus Christ already came in a spiritual way. The second coming has already happened, so there's nothing really to look forward to. It happened in a spiritual way. Wait a minute. Next phrase says, every eye will see him. You say, oh, well, yeah, well, that would be of Christians. Christians can see him spiritually with their eye. Now, wait a minute. Next phrase. Even those who pierced him. Uh Uh-oh. Who did that? You say, well, Romans pierced Jesus. That's what the spear did. True. But you find that that's a quote from Zechariah chapter 12. And the people who wail because they look upon him whom they have pierced, 
It's the whole house of Israel. This is not a reference to the Romans here. It's to the people who are behind the crucifixion. It wasn't the Roman idea to take Jesus out and crucify him. It's what the Jews were doing. They were crying, crucify him, crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? His blood be upon us and in our children, they said. Now, this is a reference to the Jewish people. And they will wail on on account of him as a person would mourn for their only son's passing. So this reference here is to even people who have up to this point not believed on him. Some will, but I think they're going to wail over their unbelief. How could we have been so benighted? How could we be so wrong? They're going to, they're going to wail that they missed it. And there are other groups as well. goes on to say, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, the tribes here isn't a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel because these are the tribes of all the peoples of the earth. Every people group will also be in a state of mourning and extreme agony because of missing what they should have gotten, the announcements of Jesus Christ. And that might bring you some sadness But notice that the response of Christian people is, just like John says, even so, amen. Really, two words in the Greek, it's yes, amen. We give an affirmation, it's true, we agree with that, and that's one reason why we say amen. You know, I think as we come together in worship, just a little bit of an aside and an application here, some churches have gone to clapping and cheering, I'm not totally against that, but I think we're not getting the full benefit of what we could. You don't have to express faith in something to clap. You can just say, you might be just saying, I like that, so good job, keep it up. But when you say amen, you're saying something much deeper, aren't you? You're saying, I believe that. You're saying, that is true. And I think it's a good practice for Christian people to get into. You don't have to be the loudest ameniter in church. That's not what it's about. But it's a good thing for Christian people when truth is spoken to say, I believe that. That's right. That's true. Or when a song is sung to the praise of our God and Savior, that you would say, I believe that. That's good and right and true. And you say, Can it be a good and hearty amen? Sure, amen. Let it be heard. Speak it out. It's a good thing for people to do. Even so, what? Amen. Maybe we need to practice that a little bit, congregation. I'll say the even so, and you take the amen part, okay? Even so, amen. amen. Now, you don't have to be coached from this time forward. You just help yourself, all right? Finally, verse 8. Let's focus in on that, our final verse of our text this morning. The Lord identifies himself now. This declaration is of his near and visible return, and it might strike you as a little unusual that this is followed up by a declaration of who is saying it. The declaration has, again, a grouping of threes. The first is a sum of all communication. Alpha and Omega, I think most people recognize, are your first and final letters of the Greek alphabet. 
It's the A and their long O sound letter. There is a short O letter too, that's Omicron, but this is the final one of the Greek alphabet. The reference to our English language, we'd say the A and the Z. Now when you're the A and the Z of an alphabet, it's a way of saying you're covering all the gamut of communication. He didn't say, I, I have the A and the Z. He said, I am the A and the Z, as it were. The Alpha and the Omega. One starts, the other ends. I hope you're getting the idea here. So from a communication standpoint, he is God's greatest and final communicator. He is the one who started all the communication. Why? Because in the beginning was the the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning of God. With God, all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. You say, well, I'd, I'd just like a further confirmation. You don't need a further confirmation. Because He's the final Word. See it? He's the final communicator. There are some strange religions in the world that try to hold up other prophets as being subsequent communicators to this communicator. There are those who believe in the 7th century, there was an Arab man who went to a cave and he claims the angel Gabriel spoke to him and he wrote down these recitations, 114 of them, the surahs, and the book is called the Quran. And they claim he is another communicator since the Lord Jesus Christ. There are others who say no. There, is a need, there was a need for people over in this part, the Western world, to have a communication coming from God. Another testimony to Jesus Christ. And of course... Many of you know that the man who claimed that an angel appeared to him, the angel Moroni, appeared and gave him these messages on golden plates, wrote another testament to Jesus Christ, and they call it the Book of Mormon. Wait a minute. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. That means there aren't any others after him. That's it. There is no more revelator. There is no more scripture. This is it. This is the canon. It's closed. There aren't any other books to be put in. This is it. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the sum of all communication. He is the Lord of all eternity. Why? Because then it says who was and who is and is to come. That's the second time we've seen that. And then finally, he is the sum of all authority and power. Why? Because the last thing said here is he is the Almighty. The Greek word is pantakrator. Pan is all. And kratos is power. So you have a word here put together to say he is all powerful. He has all the power in the universe. He is the almighty God. He's the one who's communicating here. 
This is the identity. Why would a person say this at the end of a statement? Well, let's just stop and think about it for a moment. (laughs) When you have that sort of identification at the end of a statement saying, I am coming quickly, I am coming soon, you might stop for a moment and think, oh yeah, well, who's saying that? You get a statement like, the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and Omega, the Lord Almighty. You stop questioning, don't you? You say, okay, (laughs) right? Okay. And friends, these kinds of titles for this kind of a message for this kind of greeting ought to bring us to one thing. You know what the, what the re- proper response would be for anybody getting this sort of message would be? To fall down on our faces and worship him. To believe every word he says. That's the appropriate response. What do you do when the fanfare starts, the trumpets blow, and a king enters your midst? You know what to do. And my only question is, are we doing it? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Are you worshiping him? Are you serious about this? Are you believing on him? And it might be that there's somebody here today who would say, Pastor, I'm just not sure it's all true. not sure what to believe. Then that's where you need to go next. God is calling you to belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The fact that he gave his blood to redeem you, to wash you, to loose you from your sins. Have you been washed from your sins have you believed on Jesus Christ and then are you worshiping him I hope at this point this letter has grounded you in the great reality to read the book of Revelation is not to be connected with unreality to be honest with you this world is unreality <laughs> in many cases the Bible is the true reality you got to get grounded in the reality to be able to deal with the kinds of things we deal with in this world. And I trust you are. Could we stand together for prayer? All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Lord, may we give to you praise and glory today. May we sing our own doxologies that come out of our hearts. May we praise you, Lord, with a new song that comes from within. One that comes from our own spirits. One that comes out of a heart of gratitude. One that comes out of redemption because you loved us and you washed us with your own blood. 
Lord, I pray that this service would be a time of drawing near once again in love to you. As we close the service today, Lord, may there be offerings of fragrant praise, of true love, of devotion. May you receive them. And Lord, if there's any here who have need for some spiritual help, may they not forsake that. May they seek that out. But Lord, we want you to receive the worship that you're due. May we give it. As we conclude our service today, we'll just have a time for prayer, for talking to the Lord, for responding as we ought. The piano will play, and when that's done, you may be dismissed.